Hello, and welcome back to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Todd Norwood, here with my co-host, Jason Hammond. Hey, how's it going? Uh, today we're talking about qualitative movement analysis. Todd, you're a PT, so I know you have some experience with this. I probably do it with every patient, and you know, every time somebody's in the clinic having to look at how they're moving to give me an idea of where I want to start my treatment, right, to address whatever functional limitations they're having. So yeah, this is this is right up my alley. Okay, so there's two types of uh, movement analysis. There's qualitative and quantitative. So qualitative is um, it's less objective. It's more uh, how how does the observer view the motion of this individual? And quantitative, which I think cyclists are a bit obsessed with the quantitative side is, you know, where are the watts if we want to apply this directly to cycling? Um, so yeah, movement analysis generically is analyzing the movement and we'll call the person who's being analyzed the performer uh, as a sort of standardized vocabulary for us. So uh, movement analysis is the systematic observation and evaluation of the quality of a movement. Um, kind of like what you just said. Uh, the goal is to judge the level of performance and provide feedback. So hopefully you're an expert in the field and uh, someone's pitching or ice skating, or these are all sort of exaggerated examples. I mean, it can be anything, right? So more practically, I would look at somebody who walk or go up and down stairs in the clinic. Uh, but of course, you can extend that to sports and figure out where is this limitation for a sport performance, which is, I think, where we're going a little bit today. Yep. So we are going to focus on cycling specifically, uh, doing movement analysis for cycling. So the first step of uh, qualitative analysis is evaluating. So this is, involves watching, judging. Um, and one important thing to ask is if the performer is completing their goals. Uh, so uh, if it is someone walking, you know, yes, they can walk. I think most of us can walk. Uh, but are they completing their goals is another question. And I think there's two ways to look at that because this, this is often a debate among physical therapists. I'm not going to go down this road because I think we could be here all night. But the issue is, okay, well, completing my goals, can I cover, you know, whatever, 500 feet without pain in my knee? That's one, perhaps one goal for a patient. Um, can I cycle uh, competitively at a cat two level without pain in my hip while I'm riding? You know, that could be a goal for a cyclist. Uh, you, you can pick it, right? But there's usually some, some parameters around that goal that you're trying to understand. And then there's always the debate is, so if it doesn't look quite the way you expect it, but the person is meeting their goals, do you need to address it? And that, that's a whole can of worms. Hmm. So that's interesting to think about. I, I think that uh, Olympic sports are a great uh, discussion point for movement analysis because I think a lot of them have really standardized movements and repetitive mm -hmm. movements. And thinking, uh, you know, watching the Olympics, how many of them have symmetric, like the exact same movements among different performers? And, you know, something like archery or... Um, even like rock climbing, stuff like that, it seems like there's pretty standard movement patterns. Mm -hmm. And uh, how much deviation is there normally at, you know, a high level? Uh, there's some, for some things, there's a fair bit. I mean, I think if you look at, say, um, well, if you look at the artistic sports, so the diving, the gymnastics, right. where you're graded on the quality and there's some expectation of standard, there you're trying to minimize that variation, right? You're, you're graded on a certain standard, so you, want, you need to live up to that. Uh, whereas things that are more open, say tennis, perhaps, where you can swing the tennis racket however you want, sure. um, and it, you know ultimately the results how you play. And I think if you look at tennis players, there's a fair amount of variation. There, you know, the 
tennis swing, the serve is has some standard elements to it, but then serves among top players can vary quite a bit. Mm. So it, it, I think it's a balance between like what works for you and the sport that you're doing and your body, and then trying to be somewhat close to the archetype, right? Like serving underhand in tennis would not get you very far. Right. So that's <clears throat> kind of the balance is there is this theoretical optimal, you know, if we take the generic body and we say what is the best way to produce power you know in a tennis stroke there is some Mm -hmm. you know theoretical value and um i don't think anyone is actually there but how close can you get and how much how much does it affect your game to to be close and um that's something specific for cycling is um, a lot of people don't you know the, the goal is to have perfectly aligned knees you know with the ankle and the hips everything's perfect and I remember reading a white paper that said, as long as you're pretty close, it doesn't really affect your threshold or or any sort of power standards. And um, once you deviate a certain amount, though, you start to get pain, you start to get power loss, stuff like that. But if you're pretty close, you're probably good. I think I like to think about the human body as a system that has pretty decent tolerances. We have some wiggle room. Like we're not a super precise system. If it's off by a couple degrees here or there, your body's probably going to figure it out. If it's grossly off, you're probably not getting the optimal result, right? If you're if your saddle height's within half a centimeter of where it ought to be, or a centimeter, maybe even a centimeter and a half, you're probably going to ride just fine, uh, unless you're like, like a super experienced rider and you're really dialed in on your fit. You're probably okay. If your saddle is ten centimeters away from where it's supposed to be, you, you're probably going to be miserable, right? Something's mm-hmm. going to hurt. You're not going to be very efficient. And another thing to think about is. Is your threshold really limited by this uh, the, the this biomechanics slight, you know, malfunction? Um, the the only counter argument to that is maybe if your biomechanics are perfect, then the you know the capacity to put the power into the pedals at a lower heart rate or the same heart rate is greater, mm-hmm. uh, which then you know lends you to have a higher threshold. Which that's probably the ultimate goal of of a movement analysis for someone who's trying to improve as a rider is optimally engaging all the muscles that they mm-hmm. can and doing the most work with the least amount of energy. Yeah, it's it's like it's fuel efficiency, right? Yeah. So uh, if the individual is not meeting their goals, uh, the evaluator decides that the individual isn't, um, you know, performing the movement correctly. They try and troubleshoot and pinpoint the reason why the goal is not attained. Uh, how would they do this? So you you want to break down the movement into some parts, right? Hopefully, I think cycling. This is we don't say basic. It's like okay, downstroke and upstroke. And is there some deviation that's occurring in either one of these? So thinking about, I'd say first sagittal plane, what's sort of the expected ranges of motion for a hip, knee, and ankle to move through uh, as you go through a pedal stroke? Do those look approximately right or are one of those grossly off? You know, if it's approximately right, great, move on to the next step. If, Mm -hmm. if not, address that and then right, that's that this is a good starting point and then you address that from there and so it's like a, an algorithm that you're going through right checking off things at a very high level and then moving down into more and more detail and okay yeah see how it looks good when gee you know what when they put power down in the downstroke on their left leg uh, their knee caves into valgus hmm something right something happening there okay mm-hmm. let's try to let's now dive into that and see what might be affecting that movement uh, movement fault and would you ever ask the rider to emphasize a certain part of their pedal stroke or um, their fit in, in a way that you can isolate a problem? Or even sometimes ask if they can change something. Like, oh, can you keep your knee from moving inward like that? Or can you do this? Can you do that? Can you sit up taller? 
just to see if they can change, like if there's almost like a, a learning or a, a practice habit that needs to be changed. Okay. I'm like, oh, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't even aware that I was doing that. And sure. Just, so the awareness it, wasn't there. And they it were, could be a, a mental or um, like, as opposed to a physical mobility issue, it could mm-hmm. be a mental awareness issue. Like, oh, I've just always pedaled this way. I didn't know I was supposed to do anything different than that. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, the end goal is to identify the specific cause, not, mm-hmm. you know, not the high level, um, your knee dips in. That's even kind of high level. It's more, you know, what oh. muscle is mm-hmm. activating or, um, you know, where is the mobility issue or, or something like that. And then the last step is to intervene and attempt to correct the cause of the performer not reaching their goals. And, um, Hopefully it's a simple one-step fix. I assume sometimes when you fix one thing, then you look back again and there's, you know, two or three new things. And, you know, that's when you start to get nervous, I assume. Uh, Yes and no. I I mean, I think it just depends on where you're starting from and where you're going. And if you're, you know, performers along for the ride, then great. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll bear with you as you go through. And I think that's always the importance of, when you're talking about biking, setting a baseline. And then say, okay, this is what I saw. If I can record it, even better, right? Yeah, so please I can... measure your, your starting fit. Yeah, oh, absolutely measure your starting fit. I'm talking about from an analysis standpoint is to be able to record the initial movement that you okay. were screening or that you were assessing and then have that so you just have serial videos or serial images to reflect on. Say, okay, yeah, I fixed this thing. And then I think it's, it's, it's a nice way of also hypothesis testing, right? So I, I did, you know, I saw this. I did this because I thought, you know, this was the cause and now what happened? Did I fix it? Did I not fix it? Okay, great. I fixed it, but now I induced this other, this other issue. Mm-hmm. And then you have to ask yourself, is that a related, is that related to the change I made or was that something that was, you know, still could also be similar, similar cause or similar origin of what I was initially addressing. And there's other, other things I need to change to address that. Sure. So it seems a bit like uh, after intervene, you know, go back to step one. Yep. Uh, yeah. You know, assess, intervene, reassess, repeat until you're mm-hmm. at your desired goal. And sometimes that can take you a little bit, right? And sometimes there's a, a learning piece involved. So, okay, great. We fixed this thing. And oh, also you weren't mindful that you were pedaling in such a way that was causing a problem. So we fixed this one mechanical thing. And now there's this practice component. I want you to practice doing X next time you're on your bike. Because right? part of it you could control and part of it was a, a physical restriction maybe. Sure. So let's talk about cycling specifically. Uh, what are the movement goals for cyclists? Turn the pedals so you go faster. I, I mean, at, at its basic level, right? Um, so I think primarily it's going to be driven around the lower body um, okay. to turn, turn the pedals forward really your upper body shouldn't be doing a whole lot of moving uh, unless you're changing position or you know maybe steering the bike a little bit but if we're talking about going in a straight line and trying to produce power your upper body should be pretty quiet other than doing some breathing um so right it's hips and knees and ankles are as we mentioned before pretty close to in line um and you know you want your legs working Sort of in a in a in, in opposition, right? Like two pistons, almost, right? Where one's pushing down, the other one's coming up to, sure. to appropriately unweight the pedal. Um, and then you know, <clears throat> I think it's like you want a stable pelvis to to anchor that, and then 
everything should just move smoothly through your pedal stroke at whatever rate that you do. Nothing choppy. Yeah, yeah this nice, nice, smooth, smooth movement. So um, before we jump into, you know, maybe the specifics of what you're describing as this mm-hmm. optimal movement, um, do we need good technique for cycling specifically? We talked about generically, do you need good technique um, in cycling? I think there's a broad range of... Uh, physiques and a broad range of postures and uh, everybody's got their own crazy bike fit that they think is better because they can get their head lower or um, whatever and um, everybody's got their own way of getting to the finish line does it does it matter if there's some optimal way should we really attempt to pursue it so i think the question's probably nuanced and it's what's optimal for you which may not necessarily be optimal for me or the next person. So I think you should try to pursue what's optimal for you. And it's probably not terribly far off from what we would generally call optimal. Like the uh, humans are on a bill curve, more or less, right? Mm -hmm. If you figure optimal cycling positions at the middle of that bill curve somewhere, um, as far as, you know, and most people are around that. That, that ideal and there's going to be a few outliers on either end where their best position is wildly different from what we would call optimal and that totally works for them and you know if you looked at them that you know from a qualitative standpoint it would look funky if but if you put your assumptions aside of what ideal should look like on a bike and you just observe the quality of their movements the smoothness my guess is you you would then say on second assessment well, you know what? It looks funky because it's not what I expect it to be, but their motion's very fluid and efficient. So, hmm. yeah, so this works the, for them. At the end of the day, the goal is really to engage the right muscles at the right point in the pedal stroke. Mm-hmm. And I think that goal is generic enough that regardless of how you choose to um, position your body, if you can achieve that goal, you're probably going to be um, you know, using your body effectively. Oh, yeah, I would agree with that. So let's talk a little bit about, um, there's a few different ways to look at uh, optimal cycling technique. And uh, this is specifically the pedal stroke. Uh, Another title for this podcast could be, you know, kind of why your pedal stroke sucks, Um, (laughs) which I think that most cyclists don't have a good pedal stroke. And I think that's because we, we as a community don't emphasize the pedal stroke. And I mean, how many of my coaches have asked me, or, you know, taught me about the pedal stroke or, you know, given me drills for pedal stuff and, um, you know, not many. And I, I really don't have a lot of guided experience in um, pedaling. And I, I think that when a new rider comes in, nobody says, uh, hey, you want to do this, you want to do that. And um, so as a whole, I think people just say, well, you just push down, right? And that's it. You it know? just goes, just, right? You, figure you, it out. you push your left <laughs> leg and then afterwards you push your right leg and then, and then you push your left leg again. Um, but in reality, if you look at, I remember watching uh, a short clip of a pro Peloton and they were all same. It's like just the fluidness and you can just see the entire leg engaging um, in this like piston like motion. It's um, really satisfying and you can just like almost visually see the power that they have relative to a club rider who, um, you know, is maybe smashing down and their knees wiggling and, uh, you know, it's, it's not a fluid motion. It's a smash and then a, a drag or a, a slow portion at the bottom mm-hmm. and something like that. So um, the first thing I want to say is that if you look at diagrams, you know, one thing that you can look at when you're doing 
analysis is what muscles are used and when. Mm -hmm. And I pulled up a bunch of diagrams. They have these circular diagrams with uh, like different um, radius uh, sort of donuts around um, the, the crank arm. And each donut represents a different muscle and they're um, relatively sized in order to say, you know, well, if the glutes are used at the two o'clock position, you know, it's relatively large and um, the way this diagram works, it it's attempts to tell you when each muscle is engaged in mm -hmm. the pedal stroke. And if you take two, three, four of these diagrams, they all look different. Uh, I mean, there are like, um, there's some themes of, right. Sure. You know, there's, there's certain parts like your, your glutes are not working between say nine o'clock and 12 o'clock. I hope your glutes aren't working yeah, between right. nine and 12, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, there are overarching themes, but in terms of this optimal pedal stroke, it seems that the community is kind of undecided and, um, at the end of the day, you want to engage all the right muscles at the right times. And, uh, I guess not at the right times because I mean, that's what the difference in the diagrams is showing. Yeah. But I mean, going back to what you said earlier, you, you could certainly extrapolate, you know, just with simple biomechanics based on the leverages when, when the best time to use a given muscle is right. Sure. And three o'clock is, I mean, the three o'clock is the most important part of the pedal stroke yep. um, in terms of getting the torque in the right direction. Yeah. Yep. The force is perpendicular. So, you know, one thing we've said this before is, you know, three o'clock is the most important. And um, anyway, so, so here's a few different ways to look at uh, the pedal stroke. So Todd, if you want to explain you, you told me about a triangle method uh, when we were working together uh, a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, you know, cir circles are inherently complicated, right? You're, you are fixed to something that is going to go in a circle, whether you want it to or not. Um, you can sort of deviate from that by changing your ankle action a little bit. But regardless, your, your pedals are going in a, in a circle and the radius is the crank arm length, right? In the end of discussion there. And cir but circles are hard to think about, right? Because in theory, it's an infinite number of points. So yeah, so take a triangle, turn it into a square, turn it into a yeah. pentagon, and uh, right. once you keep adding sides, it eventually turns into yeah. a circle. Yeah. So this, this yeah. is complicated. So a triangle is a much simpler concept. Right? There's only three things you need to hit. You have, if you think about it, there's three actions, the, the legs of the triangle, that you need to take on a given pedal stroke. And so there's a, a downward action. Uh, if you think of like the, the peak of the triangle. And so apex. like an equilateral triangle with yep. the top point at, at 12 o'clock. Yep. Okay. And so one is this sort of down towards this five o'clock type position. Uh, and then the second action, this next leg is back right, to the seven, eight o'clock position. And the last section is, is up. Um, and if you were like, if you can imagine you wanted to like shade these things, like you're talking about like that first, that first point would be much thicker, right? That's much more important to happen. The others are, accessories and you want to unload uh, between the bottom and 12 o'clock of course you want to offload and maybe even pull a touch but like relatively speaking you don't want to expend your energy pulling the pedal up it's not that's not going to be the most efficient thing yeah biomechanically we're not suited to uh, yeah, produce a lot our, of power pulling yeah. up yeah so i think that's just a nice it's a very simple construct to think about okay i have three tasks to do on every pedal stroke with my leg just down and forward back up done uh, it just really breaks it down as opposed to thinking about like well i'm supposed to go in this nice circle how the heck do i do how the heck do sure. i do that yeah the triangle's nice especially for newer riders um you know it's three steps and mm -hmm. um if you do a single leg exercise one two three one two three one two three um it gets you really into the the motion of it and i think that uh, one way to think about it is um 
if if you're doing a repetitive motion, one way to describe it is the execution, which is the um, you know twelve o'clock to four o'clock mm-hmm. is the execution. The follow through is uh, four o'clock to eight o'clock, mm-hmm. and then the preparation for the execution mm-hmm. is eight o'clock uh, On. to mm-hmm. twelve. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, execute, follow through, prepare for the next cycle. Mm-hmm. And um, this is kind of intuitive. That's how. Um, you know, a lot of sports motions have that same, uh, you know, I'm doing the action, I'm following through, you know, I'm getting ready to do the action again. Mm-hmm. And it's just really intuitive to think of it in that way. Um, but I have an alternate uh, pedaling thought process. And um, I guess I like mine because, so I, I view pedaling as a square. And that's, you know, one argument could be made that it's because um, a triangle, if you're trying to do both legs at the same time, if you're at 12 o'clock on the one, you're halfway through the follow through on the other side. So you're you're actually on like a six sided. Um, if, if you look at both feet sure, at the same sure. time. Yeah, they're not symmetrical objects. Yeah. So a square, though, you know, if you're on the bottom, you're on the top at the same time. So you can almost think of it as two steps or mm-hmm. four steps, depending on if you're looking at a single mm-hmm. foot or um, both feet. So. Um, the way that, that I view the square is um, the, you know, the stomp. We'll start there so you, mm-hmm. everyone can orient. Um, the the downstroke is, you know, 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock or so, and that's the stomp. And then you have the mud off your shoe mm-hmm. is the bottom. Um, that's the pull through. And then the next two are, I think, of high knees, the, um, the high knee motion. This is your hip flexion motion. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, across the top, think of kicking at your knee. Um, so I think of that as uh, like when you're if you're punting a soccer ball, um, like you you know you drop it from your hands and you kick it, and mm-hmm. a, you you get a lot of knee extension uh, for that. And so coming across the top, think of kicking your knee forward, and then push down with your glutes and your quads, uh, scrape the mud, and then do a high knee motion. Mm-hmm. And um, then when you incorporate both feet. Your um, your knee kicking and mud sliding at the same time, and then you're stomping and high kneeing at the same mm-hmm. time. And I think the stomping and high kneeing is rather intuitive to just do the like they're they're very opposite motions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like many of the things we do, right? A little reciprocal motion. Yeah. So uh, I prefer that. I I I'm gonna claim that I came up with that on my own. I think I connected some dots with. Uh, I, I Googled like, you know, what does it feel like? Oh, you know, what should it feel like over the top of the pedal stroke? And, you know, oh, imagine you're, you know, kicking at the knee. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone knows the mud off the bottom of the shoe to try and get the yeah. hamstring engagement. Um, but yeah, I, I think the square is good. I don't think it's overwhelming and it, it just works for me. So if I propose Pentagon model later, eventually we'll degrade to yeah do we have (laughs) i I do not have a good pentagon analogy or um like i'm just saying like do we even have enough muscles for uh you know for pentagon or hexagon we have as many muscles as i mean i guess not in you know unique joint activation patterns but yeah well um, we we have to engage we have to get the ankle involved with our um, pentagon or hexagon models right the the ankle action yeah Yeah. maybe that would be the bottom of the pentagon or something because our uh, the square is is hip and knee (laughs) a lot of um, so a last, the last way to think about it, uh, which is kind of a cool way. And, um, when I read, I read this somewhere and it's maybe a little more out of the box way to think about it, but, um, think of the pedal stroke as a coil and uncoil motion. 
uh, as opposed to the triangle is, you know, execute, follow through, prepare for the next round. Um, coiling and uncoiling, think about, I think 11 or 12 o'clock is the most coiled position. Mm-hmm. And then seven o'clock is the most uncoiled position. And if you look at a sprinter, they're following through all the way through six and um, you engage your calves right at the mm-hmm. end there. A little kick. And, uh, and so, you know, single leg, you're, you know, doing opposite coiling and uncoiling. Mm-hmm. Um it's, it's a different way to think about the pedal motion, and I, I think it works for some but, people. I mean, also, if you think about other things, right, we do a lot of coiling and uncoiling as human beings, even in walking, running, jumping. Right? I mean, like, jumping is the perfect example. You have that little counter movement as you squat down, load everything up, coil, like loading yep. up the spring, and then, and then coming out of it uncoiling. So it's definitely a very common throwing a ball, same thing, cocking your arm yep. back is coiling up a spring. Uh, so, it's a, yeah, it's a pretty common strategy for human movement. Yeah. So I, and I think it, yeah, it feels intuitive and, uh, you know, smashing down and uncoiling the one leg and, um, mm-hmm. pulling up the other one at the same time feels natural. And it's kind of chunky in that, uh, you have to remember to decelerate at the end of the uncoil, uh, or else you like really snap into that seven o'clock and kind of get caught there. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just another way to think about it. And probably a combination of men- mentally thinking about all of these different ways is a way to get a, a good pedal stroke. So let's talk a little bit about um, what are some constraints on your ability to complete the activity. So this is part of the troubleshooting uh, side is when you do your qualitative analysis. And you know maybe you're recording yourself doing this, or maybe you have a coach or uh, a writing partner who's watching you do it, uh, probably on a trainer. Uh, <laughs> I hope it's a lot easier to analyze movement when something is fixed. Like yeah. the, the observer is fixed. Well, cyclists are really good at, um, you know, viewing stuff on a, on a moving, moving. reference yeah. frame, but, um, yeah. Okay. Assuming you're it's a lot easier to take a video when, <laughs> when yeah. things are fixed. That's for um, sure. So, you know, while you're viewing this, um, and you're troubleshooting, you know, why, why can't I uncoil, you know, my glutes and my quads and my calves, um, you have to think a little bit about what the possible restrictions are. So uh, one possible restriction is maybe the task or the environment. These are two areas that don't really apply to cycling. Um, Generically, if you're doing qualitative analysis, you have to say, is the task just too hard? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it, is it unrealistic for a human to do this? And yeah, the scale, yeah. Cycling scales nicely, right? You can adjust the number of Watts one way or another. You can change a gear. So yeah. you, can, you can make the task suitable. And, uh, and and maybe part of that question is, is your goal set properly? Mm-hmm. Um, which that's part of the troubleshooting as well. Um, and then the other one, the environment. Also, you know, maybe extreme heat could cause you to have some issues. But for the most part, cycling is also um, isn't really affected by environmental factors when it comes to, um, you know, movement analysis. But the two areas that are affected are naturally the individual and the bike. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are the two centers of the movement analysis for cycling. So, um, I actually meant for that to be like a bit of a test for you to ask you, uh, if the, you know, what are the two areas that are most important? I'm sure you would have gotten it right. But, um, how, you know, follow up question, how can the fit, um, affect an individual's, you know, ability to fulfill these movement patterns? see the other two episodes on fitting no i think but but honestly right i think that's a good a good place to start and and review would be have like have a have a listen to those if you're curious about an in-depth 
uh, yeah, review we had of, a, of fitting. Our um, fit yourself episode is really popular. So I think that's that's worth uh, worth review if you're interested in that particular. But I think it's the simple way to think about it is the fit is preventing you in some way from um, using your body efficiently or optimally. Uh, so that could be a seat too high, a seat too low, a handlebar too far out or too close. Uh, you know, the reach is too long, too short. Right? We, you know, you can name the list of all all possible things. But you know, I'd say it's it's putting an undue strain on the on the body, and therefore you're compromising your performance because you're you're making some adaptation that you shouldn't be making. And and it's it um, inhibiting the muscles mm-hmm. a lot as well. Uh, whether that you know if your saddle's too low you can't really follow through mm-hmm. because you can't get proper extension either yep. either on your hip or your knee yeah um, so you're yeah the length tension relationship isn't appropriate yep or if your saddle's too high for example your hamstrings are too long to engage uh, mm-hmm. properly and um, so your fit can really affect your ability to fulfill the movement analysis and what what would be smart is matching up the failures in the movement with um, a general idea of what muscles should be engaged. So yes. if you fail to um, do the high knee motion, you know, maybe you want to look at hip flexor stuff. Mm-hmm. If you fail to do the mud scraping portion, or it seems like unduly difficult, mm-hmm. you know, that's like the hamstring area. Um, and, you know, if you, if you do have any side to side rocking or something like that, um, you know, you can look at the, the hip mobility and stuff like that for the fit. And also check your cleats. Yeah. Worn, worn cleats make that happen more than it should. And um, the last area that maybe prevents you from, this is most likely the reason that you can't fulfill, um, you know, the, the highest of pedal stroke quality is, is the individual. So Todd, you're a physical therapist, so you focus on the individual. Uh, what are some major areas? I have a few uh so notes written down if you right. so i'd say highest level it's strength it's flexibility or it's this third thing that i've hinted at which is motor control is what i call it but lack of practice you don't have the right pattern to do the movement you have the flexibility and strength that we test those things independently but you can't put it together Right. So this, this is something I think in this context, this may just be a novice rider. Right? They're generally fit individual, but they have no idea how to pedal a bike because nobody's taught them. Right. Nobody's explained like, oh, we'll just put one foot in front of the other and go. And that was it. Like that's all the instruction they got. So they don't have the practice of doing the movement. Uh, so it's more, more specifically things that um, we think about as limiting factors or that I, I've certainly seen um, core strength and or stability definitely plays a role because um, you want your pelvis and your upper body not to do a whole lot of moving. So that, that definitely plays a role. And we're actually going to have a separate episode on the core. Here's our plug for, well, it, it may not be released by the time that you're listening to this, so that might be inconvenient, but uh, we will be releasing a core episode and how that contributes to you know proper pedal stroke and, and a strong rider. So, so that's a piece. Uh, hip mobility for a lot of people is a challenge. Uh, and different muscles, different planes. So I think that's like, that could be almost a whole episode by itself, just really taking a deep dive on hip mobility. Um, I think it's because we sit too much as a society. I think that has a contributing factor to it, but that, that that's sure. a soapbox. Well, 
Yeah, I, I would like to do an episode on hip mobility, so we can. Uh, All right. Well, so so now you know it's coming down the line. Core yeah. episode hip mobility. Um, so I think that for sure. Uh, you know, they not a lot of people are really weak per se, like uh, hip weakness per se, or, or you know, quad weak. I mean, that's really not that much of an issue. Um, sometimes you'll see some like ankle funkiness but i think that has to do with the the motor control than any if they have a funky ankling pattern that's more just the practice than anything else yeah i think what's interesting in my experience and my teammates experience is you know you're you've said this before like your glutes are there mm-hmm. but you're just not using you're them in the pedal them around. for some reason yeah. and uh or like you know same thing with your core like you have muscles mm-hmm. uh, and they're they're fine they're normal sized but they don't squeeze. Uh, I think that's really a lot of the times what the pedal stroke is like. Um, you know, I can do, you know, X motion. I can do high knees, but on the bike, it's just doesn't seem to like click or I can't do it every pedal stroke. I, I get fatigued or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but if you, if you take me off the bike and you put on my running shoes, I can, you know, do the same pattern. And, uh, I don't have an answer to this It's probably, I'm maybe still stuck on this for part of the pedal stroke for myself. Uh, I don't know if you have any insight. So, you know, I think part of this has to do with length tension relationships, right. Of, of different muscles. So depending on how your fit is, you may you know, have a compromise on one place or another, but let's just assume that your fit is magically correct. Right. And everything, everything can function in appropriate length tension relationship. So I think a challenging place for a lot of people is the 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 upstroke, the recovery phase, whatever we want to call that. And really, it shouldn't be that much work. But if you think about it, you know, if you do 90 RPMs for a couple hours, you're kind of like doing a ton of stairs, like small stairs, right? but you're walking up a ton of small stairs. Those muscles are going to fatigue. You never really do that in life. So it's a very specific skill to train, uh, and I think it's only going to come from being on the bike. So I think that's a that's an example. I think the other part is mentally we want to do something vigorous, right? Like I'm going to pull up. Well, no, not not really. You're going to gently lift your foot and then and then go forward. So again, that repetition, that pattern, uh, and getting between you know high high rep count with relatively low low, I think that's a challenge. Yeah, I think another. Um you know, like Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just riding your bike more. It's riding your bike while trying to engage those muscles with, yep, with purpose. And so if, you know, if you just ride your bike, you could have the best downstroke ever. Um, but if you're just pushing up the other leg, you're missing out on, um, you know, a lot of Watts that, that could be added to your, um, to your threshold. If you could lift up on the other side and do it consistently, that I think that's the other piece. Yeah, I think a lot of um, pro cyclists have like really oversized hip flexors. Is that right? I remember reading that somewhere. That would make sense because there is a rare condition that happens generally only in like high level cyclists and also rowers, uh, where the the artery there gets uh, compressed quite a bit from the repetitive action. So yeah, there's um, just so much muscle mass, right? The mu- muscle mass, the repetitive out. action, squishes the artery. It causes it to. Uh, become narrower which of course is totally counterproductive because now you have less blood going to the leg that you want to provide power yeah i think joe dombrowski had that pretty badly a few um, years ago. yes and the women's mountain bike world champion this year she recovered from that 
uh, had surgery oh. and recovered from that. And uh, the French one, I can't think of her name off the top of my head now. But um, Pervo? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Um, that's really interesting. I know it takes a long time to recover from that. And um, I think Bobby Lee had it too. And uh, it's like if if it if it ruptures like if you if you get back yeah, into the yeah, sport it's... too early like you're just done like they they don't fix that um or you know it's no, too hard they, to... they don't they don't fix it for for sporting purposes they yeah well for... i mean also like you know if you go to the er I, i'm not sure they have the capacity to um to mend it if it does pop so you have to be really not, yeah, careful not in uh yeah yeah well certainly they, they'll get it fixed but they won't fix it for what you want to do yeah yeah um so I think that, you know, I was thinking more along the lines of um, my notes say like hip flexors are too weak, hamstrings are too weak, but mm-hmm. it's probably more that they're inhibited in some way or um, just the, you know, four hours of 90 RPMs and, um, you know, these little tiny precise movements. And that, that was the other thing I was going to say is people think that power on the bike is uh, smash, smash, smash. And in reality, it's, you know, smash, place gently, smash, place gently uh, for each leg. And mm-hmm. uh, so while you're at the same time, yeah. So while you're, you know, destroying the three o'clock position, you're gently lifting up the other side. And um, you'll see a lot of top riders like watch, watch some professional time trialists and they do a really good job of, you know, you can see the watts coming out, but just the total control they have um, is really impressive. It's not, there's no thrashing or anything else. They look rather calm, but mm-hmm. you know, they're absolutely redlining it. Yeah. Very, very fluid movement. You wouldn't, you would not think they were under strain mm-hmm. and they have, sorry, they absolutely are. Right. So um, the only other thing I want to say is um, some tips. So uh, there's a biomechanics book that I took a lot of reference from and um, some tips they give for if you're the judge of the qualitative analysis for someone, make sure that all the joints move backwards at some point in order to allow them to move forward. Uh, so, you know, make sure that your your calf, um, that's the whole picking up the heel. If you're choosing to engage your calf, there's maybe we need an episode on, uh, on toe pointing and heel lifting. And arch cleats. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, make make sure that you're compressing the muscle. And um, one thing that I noticed was, you know, some days my glutes would be really fatigued and my quads weren't. And I realized that, well, in order for your quads to be more active, you need to uh, engage the hamstrings in order to, uh, you know, move backwards in the motion. Yeah, sort of load and, the spring. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if maybe my hip flexors are overactive, my hamstrings are underactive. And then, um, you know, I'm, I'm not getting in, I'm getting too much you know, hip motion, not enough, um, knee motion. So things like that, that's part of the troubleshooting. Um, and then also make sure all the joints can contribute. So I think, I mean, I think calves should be used. You look mm-hmm. at, I remember watching, uh, one of the Fabian Cancellara, Tom Bonin, you know, one V one, uh, Perry Roubaix, uh, years, and they both were like really engaging their calves um, even, you know, five or six hours into the race. And that was something that really stood out to me for some reason. But I mean, if, if Tom Bonin's doing it, uh, it's good enough for Tom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the, the last thing and here, you can, uh, tell, tell me a little bit about this, the talk about the feedback for the rider and how it should be focused on the moving parts and, uh, you know, there's this classic uh, archetype dad who's, you know, well, just push harder, son. 
you know, or, or whatever, you know, the, the baseball coach, you know, swing faster. And um, really you want to say, you know, try and lift your shoulder up or, you know, try and be specific and try and talk about the action items that they can, you know, actively. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just pedal harder. doesn't really help anybody. Like, well, what do you mean yeah. pedal harder? But I mean, it's I so easy that. to fall into that. And, um, but it's maybe more because of a lack of overall understanding of what's happening. I think, I think that, I think sometimes language fails us too. I mean, maybe we don't have the right language. So, you know, you probably know what you want them to do, right? Like, you know, if your dad's innocently trying to teach you how to play baseball, he knows what, like, he wants you to look like the Hall of Fame slugger, but he doesn't have the language to describe it to you. <laughs> and so what I always find with patients and you work with enough people, you one day you have a moment, you're like, oh, man, I gave this person this cue and it was perfect. Like, I'm always going to say this to people. And then you say to the next person, they look at you, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> My point here is you have some ideas, the observer what you're seeing, what you think the fault is and what a possible remedy for that is. So when you go to cue somebody, as many different ways as you can describe it to them as possible is going to be better because what, what makes sense to you may not make sense to me. And that may not make sense to the person you're talking to. So give them, explain it in three ways, explain it in five ways until you get them to do what it is that you're, you're looking for. Um, and don't don't feel bad about that. So it's just a matter of communicating, you know, different experiences, different backgrounds. And we all have one thing or another that we're going to respond to. So I think thinking and trying to make it specific and trying to make it um, bite sized pieces. Right. Because if you if you go say, well, I want you to do this with your hip and this with your knee and this with your ankle, they're going to be lost. Even if it was crystal clear what the three things were that you were expecting. They're going to be so lost. They can't focus on three. So pick one bite-sized thing, work through that, get, you know, get that reasonable. And then, you know, more other things. Another thing that I'm thinking of is, you know, if you start throwing muscle names at a lot of people, um, I mean, you've already lost them, right? So, um, you know, curtailing the language to the individual is also probably pretty important. Yeah. Some people will be totally into muscle names, right? And like, oh, cool. Great. Yeah. I took anatomy when I was in high school or college and something like that. What are you talking about? Yeah. Or even uh, other stuff that I think I, I noticed with some of my club mates is like engage, mm-hmm. you know, engage this mm-hmm. muscle is intuitive to some people and other people are like, what? Like, yeah. Just say you use this, squeeze this, flex this. Yeah. I think to my yeah, point yeah. earlier, right, there, there's a word that the person understands. Sometimes it's your job to find it and not give up until you, mm-hmm. you get that message communicated in whatever, whatever language that is that works for them. Yep. And so when your friend asks you to look at their pedal stroke, uh, you know, don't say, yeah, push with your toes more or, you know, oh, that could be kind of kind of useful. It can until they say, yeah, I'm doing it. And you're like, doing what? And like, oh, I'm pushing with my toes. And all they're doing is flexing their toes into the insole of their shoe. Yeah. Or um, that's kind of like, um, you know, if someone's trying to get you to pronounce a word and, you know, they keep saying the word over and over again. And then you keep saying the word and you think you're saying the word that they, uh, you know, you're like, I am pronouncing it that way. And then, and then they're like, no, 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 like this. And you're like, but I did that. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's uh, the same thing. Right. You need to find a, a similar word. Like, you know how yeah. you say this? It's it's kind of like, like... It's the first half of this word is the second half of this one. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. And so what is that? That's breaking it down into phonemes, I think is the term, um, uh, which is the smallest the, chunk of noise that, that a human yeah. can make. Yep. Um, so once you teach them the individual phonemes, then... They can put the word together. Yep. So, 
there that's a fun fact for the day yeah but i think that's the the point right is when you're practicing you want this part practice when you're trying to, to build this skill is okay do do this one part of the pedal stroke practice this part as you're doing it and then you can build on that and have the whole practice together but you have to you can't say well pedal in a circle just do it you have to break down okay well what part of the circle do i want to work on how am i going to do that mm-hmm. and cue cue all those parts and then you know eventually you can build it together although if you actually want to optimize the learning you probably also want to drill parts at certain times too yeah so on that topic i think i had some success with on you know i would normally do 45 minutes to an hour warm-up that's pretty typical um, for high-level cyclists and you do you know you just ride out to the middle of nowhere that's half the point the other half is really to get the muscles going and um, just focus on you know one quarter of the square on Mm -hmm. one leg or the triangle if you prefer that Mm -hmm. method one portion of the triangle for one leg and then do that for 30 seconds and then the same portion on the other leg and then a new portion on the original leg. And once you move through all of those, then do the one motion on the one leg while you're doing the other motion on the other leg. And, you know, you're just slowly building up the sinking. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to be on your bike for 45 minutes, you might as well just do these short little, um, it's, it's like the bodybuilder who, uh, when they're waiting at the airport are, are doing their, um, their grip, you know, mm-hmm. they have those little grip things. Um, you know, you're just like getting it out of the way and, um, you're going to be here anyway, and you're just doing, you know, endurance pace. You might as well um, try and emphasize this part of your pedal stroke. Well, I think that's the idea of mindful practice, right? You're not just going out there and warming up to warm up. You're you're taking the step to be mindful about it and get something out of it as opposed to just doing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think the coil and uncoil actually would be useful for like a 30 second VO2 max interval um, because I think the... The coil and uncoil method that we talked about is better for more powerful visualizations. Um, so maybe do 30 seconds up your local kicker hill and focus on really like uncoiling your leg uh, and the first half of the pedal stroke. I think that mm-hmm. could be a good uh, exercise as well. Yeah, absolutely. Any Anything to incorporate it, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you said, mindful practice uh, is, is always going to be better than just, uh, you know, trudging along. So... Uh, yeah, that's uh, qualitative movement analysis. Um, I think the pedal stroke is really important. It's really underemphasized in the sport. And uh, yeah, like you said, it's just fuel efficiency. And um, that's something that's definitely true for top riders is um, I always say, you know, top riders have a lot of muscle mass. That's like a, a big thing that I argue. I think a lot of amateur riders are actually too small and uh, because they think you have to be tiny to be mm-hmm. a cyclist. And um, the other thing that all pros have is they have really efficient pedal strokes. And so, uh, you know, that's just going to boost your threshold. And, you know, I, I, like there's kind of a joke, like free watts, but it, you know, it is kind of free watts if you can really nail it down. And um, the only other thing that I have uh, in terms of an argument for improving your pedal stroke is um, there are people who have optimized the wrong way to ride a bike. And, they could be cat ones. They could have a contract and, and, you know, I'm really good at only pushing down and, um, you know, you can get really far with that, but mm-hmm. there, I think the plateau for that style of riding is always going to be lower than if you ride properly. And, um, if, you know, if it's like, well, you know, I only have two months to get ready for this race, probably can't overhaul your entire pedal stroke and expect it to be really efficient. Uh, especially if you've been doing the mm-hmm. one pedal stroke for eight, 10, 12 years. So, 
you know, it's, it's sort of greedy to say, well, oh, we'll just focus on this. This is what I'm good at. But in the long term, if you're a developing rider, if you want for the long term to be a good rider, you should really focus on doing it right. And the power will come as you get better at the, the type of pedaling. Yeah, I think that's probably the painful thing is as you try to get good at improving your pedal stroke, you might not ride as well overall for a little bit. Yeah. Because you're, you're going to be, you're taking the way that you're efficient pedaling and you're disrupting that to pedal in an ultimately a more efficient way, but for you will in the short term be less efficient. Yep. And um, I think that the off season or the start of the preseason is a great time to do that because your watts are already going to be horrible for the first week. So you might as well... Um, you might as well change your pedal stroke then. Yeah, it's, it's always a good time to make adjustments. You have a long lead time, and you know, hopefully nothing urgent for you to, to be producing awesome power. So take the time, work on it, and then hit the ground running, so to speak. Sure. And uh, as we say normally, if you like our content, uh, share it with your friends. Um, you know, Rate us. Uh, hit the thumbs up button or whatever your podcast app's rating system is. And uh yeah, hopefully you enjoyed the show. Yeah. And until next time, keep the rubber side down.